Titus. We're going to, by God's grace, finish up Titus tonight. It's been a fun trip through this book. You know, one of the smaller New Testament epistles written by Paul. Sometimes overlooked, but uh, not the size of the book, it's the content, amen? It's all the Bible. So, we'll just... Oh, yeah, look at that already. Here it comes. So, Titus 3, I'm going to read verses 6 through 15. Just uh, finish up the text here. This whole section is on godly living. How many think we could use the reminders on godly living? Amen. I think uh, so fitting for the world we live in, for the culture that we live in. Father, we just thank you tonight for the word of God. We thank you tonight for this place where we can worship. We thank you for the ministers and the musicians here. Lord, we, we thank you for the rain. We just ask that the, the spiritual rain would come tonight. Father, it would water all the, the, the cracked, dry places in our hearts and in this world. Father, open up Titus tonight to us, Holy Spirit, and allow us to take the principles home with us. We ask it in Jesus' name. And the church said, Whom he poured out upon us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs, say heirs, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. Listen up. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in all good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factitious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted in his sinning and being self-condemned. Verse 12, when I, was, when I send Artemis and Tychius to you, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenus, the lawyer, and see, some lawyers can get saved. And Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All those who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be to you all. So just kind of tidbits here closing up at the end, but some real meat there starting in six. And when you look at, uh, you know, all of these verses here, they've got something in them. Even the conclusion and the greeting and the farewell can, can preach to us. And so every part of the word is important. We start in verse 6. He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So Paul continues in Titus in chapter 3, pointing to the working of the Holy Spirit in the life of the born-again believer. You see, the Holy Spirit is our teacher, and he's our mentor, and he's our confidant. If you've ever been overwhelmed and you had no one to speak to, you, you know, sometimes we feel alone and we've got, have you ever felt like, I got nobody to talk to? You ever felt like I'm in trouble and I have no one to bounce anything off? And the Holy Spirit's standing there going like this. 
We need to learn to engage the Holy Spirit. He's engaging us. He's speaking to us. And many times, you know, the last thing we do is still ourselves and stop the merry-go-round and just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. But, you know, Paul is teaching Titus that as he deals with these Cretans and he has a big job in getting them to straighten out because they're all over the place, the working of the Holy Spirit is vital in the life of a believer. Now, notice the Spirit was poured out through Jesus and because of Jesus. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. He's a a member of the Trinity. Jesus came to earth, did his work. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. Now the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son to minister to believers and to bring us into perfection by conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. The point of the drill of me being a Christian and coming to Christ is not to make a better version of Rick. It's not to make a better version of you. It's to conform us to the image of Christ. And only the Holy Spirit can do that. You know, the Holy Spirit is poured out to those who are in Christ. Notice that. So people have no legitimate access to the Spirit of God without first having a relationship with Jesus that connects them to the Father. See, people say, well, I'm spiritual. Do you believe in Jesus? No, but I'm spiritual. No, you're not spiritual. You're not spiritual because you're not connected to the Holy Spirit. You don't have access to him. Now, is the Holy Spirit wooing you? Is he convicting you? Is he drawing you so that you'll come into a relationship with Christ and and get connected with the Father and then be uh, under the influence? of? Absolutely, he's doing all those things. But people who claim to be spiritual without Jesus are, are not. Some of you look like you don't believe me. You know, the Holy Spirit... It, is, is drawing the lost humanity to the Father, but there's no spirituality without the Holy Spirit. It's counterfeit, it's pretend, it's, you know, types and shadows. Uh, it can be all of these things, but it can't be genuine of the Spirit because the Spirit is only in those who belong to Jesus Christ. Verse 7 tells us that the same grace that allows the Holy Spirit to draw us into relationship and to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ uh, will also make us heirs of eternal life. Now, this is, a, this is important to understand these things here. That having been justified by his grace, we should co- become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we're justified by God's grace. We're in relationship with Jesus. The Holy Spirit has access to us. He's mentoring us. And now we're heirs of eternal life. And that's an important thing for us to understand. You know, there are some spiritual systems that teach, you know, you're saved one minute and you do something wrong, now you're lost. Now you get right with God and you're saved again and then you're lost. And it's kind of this yo-yo Christianity. Well, if you don't confess that sin before you die, you're going to go to hell. Come on, how many came out of systems like that? And understand something. Once you are born again and filled with the Holy Spirit and God has marked you and made you one of his very own children, you're saved. And there's, of course we sin again. Of course we mess up. Of course we need to repent. Of course we need to, you know, not just repent once, but live a lifestyle of repentance. But this yo-yo spirituality, I'm in, I'm out, I'm in, I'm out. That's, that's not God. And that's not biblical. Amen. And that should cause us some rest because a lot of times the enemy makes, makes us want to feel like that. Oh, well, today you were good, so, you know, you're saved. But tomorrow, if you mess up, you're lost. And, uh, you know, his keeping power is bigger than that. Why? Because we've become heirs to eternal life. 
Now, eternal life is an incredible gift because we're receiving the exact opposite of the eternity that we should have gotten as sinners. The wages of sin is death. And you and I were born sinners. And without Jesus, all of us were headed for hell. Someone say amen. It's Christianity 101, but it's still worth getting excited about. Amen. Because I'm glad when I wake up in the morning, I'm saved. I belong to Jesus. The Holy Spirit's working on me. I'm headed for heaven. No matter what life throws at me today, you know, I'm going to be with the Lord. If the worst case scenario should happen, the worst thing that can happen to us is that we die and go to be with Jesus forever. Man, some people's smiles are just busting through a little bit. But, you know, that should give you the joy of the Lord. Amen. And so, yeah, there's a lot of negative stuff. There's a lot of darkness. But we have this hope, and it's, it's uh, something we inherited, and it's an amazing gift, eternal life. Now, all of us were headed for the eternal judgment, that death that separates us from God, that eternal punishment for our sins. You know, uh, without Jesus, we're headed for an eternity outside of God's presence. Uh, the removal of God's presence will create a place called hell, what is hell? It's the absence of God's goodness. It's the complete absence of God's presence. It's, it's an excruciatingly unbearable place because there is nothing good there. There's nothing good without God. Forget about the fire. Forget about the devil and the pitchfork and all that stuff. What makes hell hell is that God's presence is not there. And so we've received this amazing gift, this inheritance. Now, understand something about a few things about inheritance. I want to mention three things about inheritances. Number one, inheritances come to us as a matter of birthright. You're born into a family, amen, and that family gives an inheritance to its family members. So, you know, I'm born into the Leonardi family here, and being the firstborn, I get everything. Gary and Brooke get nothing when it's all over. We're we're going full Jewish on that, right? Forget. That's the way it works. No. But because we're born into the family, we're members of the family, there's an inheritance for us in that family, amen? So it's a matter of birthright. We say, how does that work in the kingdom? You were born again into God's family. You're one of God's children, so you have an inheritance that comes from him. Well, I'll just clap for you. Woo, that's awesome. Praise God, Pastor. That's good, man. I'm excited about that. Who needs you? So an inheritance comes as a matter of birthright. You were born again into the family. You have an inheritance that comes from the Lord. Number two, it's given to family members. So you and I are part of God's family, and we got to understand that. Yeah, I got a last name. Yes, uh, I'm, you know, I'm this, I'm that. I have a, a culture, you know, that comes from Italian. I'm American. I'm all of these things. But no, 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 no. Once I'm a kingdom person, once I'm part of God's family, I have a new heritage. Amen. This is what a lot of us don't get. We don't, we don't come out. You know, we are the people of God, the family of God, the children of God. So our inheritance comes because we're members of God's family. Hey, you're part of God's family. You're God's sons and your daughters. Amen. You should. <laughs> That's an exciting thing. You know, some of us don't like the family we came from. So you get, I like my family, but I don't know what's going on with you, but you get a do-over because now you're part of God's family. And because you are a son or a daughter of his, you have an inheritance. Number three, inheritances aren't earned or worked for. You know, sometimes people inherit 
hundreds of thousands of dollars in estates and houses and, you know, and, and, and they inherit all these things and you didn't work for those things. Somebody else did. The inheritance we have in the Lord, we didn't work for. We didn't earn it. Those mansions in heaven, you don't have to build it. That, that birthright that makes you a son or daughter, that, that eternal gift of salvation, uh, you didn't have to buy it. You didn't have to work it off. You're not going to get to heaven, and they're going to say, well, you know, you're going to be working for the first six billion years in heaven trying to pay off your bill because you, you didn't put anything down on your mansion. So, no, our inheritance is something that we didn't have to work for or earn. This is good news again. Some of you walked in here tonight, thought you were broke, busted, and had nothing going. Your, your balance sheet was in the negative, your bank account. But you just found out today you're rich and you're blessed and you have an eternity to look forward to, amen? We have an eternity to look forward to in Jesus Christ because of the inheritance that we received through him. And the greatest gift of it all is the gift of eternal life. What a beautiful thing. Yeah, all the other stuff is icing on the cake. But we get to be in God's presence. Unlike hell, we get to be in God's presence forever and ever and ever. Amen. Man, you think you, you've been to good worship services here. You think you, I mean, when, in the throne room, we're going to have a time in the throne room. <laughs> amen. Shaking off some of that out there, amen. Get the joy of the Lord on you because I don't know how long we got left here, but when it's all over, we're going to go be with our heavenly father, Amen. So after nailing down the free gift of salvation through grace, Paul quickly shifts gears. Now, this is part of the Pauline preaching, Paul's style of preaching. He always drove home that message. You know, salvation is a free gift. It's through the grace of God. It's not by works. But on the other side, he always added works in after he nailed down that doctrine because works are definitely a part of what we need to do. So let me read to you verse 7 again. And it says here, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so, you know, we get this inheritance. We, we have all of these blessings that come by it. But now, you know, there has to be works on the other side of that. The works on the other side of that gift of grace. And Paul, through the Holy Spirit, wants us not to forget two things. Number one, works will never save us. Did you walk an old lady across the street today? Did you help somebody with their groceries? Did you hold the door for somebody? God bless you, but that doesn't save you. God bless you. You get to know the writer of the Bible. You get to commune with the Holy Spirit, but that doesn't save you. It's not performance-based, and that's always been a theme of Paul's writing. So the, the works that we do, uh, they don't save us, but what we need to understand about them, the second point is that God expects us to do good things in this life because that's the proof that we belong to him. Why do we do these things? Because Christ is in us, amen? Why do we have love and patience and, you know, and, and think of others rather than ourselves, you know? Why do we do those things? Because Christ is in us. So those things don't save They prove that we belong to him. Now, notice Paul uh, calls this reminder in verse 8. He says this, that it is a faithful saying. This is important. And these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things 
are good and profitable to men. So, you know, he added the works in there. But he says this is a faithful saying. And I want to zero in on that a little bit. Much of what is said in the world that's supposed to be faithful sayings or trustworthy advice, do you, do you notice that most of the stuff that the world says is just worldly and it's empty, it's half-truths or it's flat-out lies? Come on, you've all heard these things, these faithful sayings of the world, you know, things like boys will be boys, or, you know, you got to sow your wild oats, or nice guys finish last. How about that one? You got to look out for number one, right? How about all's fair in love and war, or the end justifies the mean, or it's only a crime if you get caught. These are the things that the world says. Come on. You know, if you believe these things, we're going to have to get you delivered tonight, but you know, how about this one? It's just a little white lie. Well, everybody's doing it. It doesn't really matter. Come on, when you were teenagers, you liked that one. So the world's wisdom is warped. It's twisted. It's empty. It's half-truths or flat-out lies. But I've noticed that the world's faithful sayings aren't faithful at all. They're actually destructive because they allow us to justify sinful behaviors and lead us deeper into the ditches and drama of life. Amen. So when God's word says this is a faithful saying, we should pay attention. We should know what the word says, not what the world says. Amen. Well, that, th those things from the world get on us. Even if we don't agree with the statement, sometimes we, we live like that even though we say we don't agree with it. You know, when we get pushed into the corner, do we lie? When we, you know, we have, you know, we did, we did something bad. We, you know, we, we don't want to get discovered. There's all these things. We say one thing, but then, the, you know, the world's, the world's system gets on you real quick. So we got to be careful about living what the word says and rejecting what the world says. Amen. The second reminder of verse 8 is, uh, a call to mental repetition as a means of creating a spiritual safety net. He says, I want, to, I want to affirm constantly. And that's, you know, something about Paul's preaching is that a lot of it was redundant. Why? You know, because we need to hear things over and over again before we get them. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm a slow learner. I need to see things, I need to hear things, and I need to do things several times before I almost halfway have it. You know, these people who hear it once and get it perfect, man, God bless you, but that's not the most of us. You know, one time I was preaching in church, and I, I was recapping. I was preaching a series, and I was recapping from the week before, and someone came to me after service and complained and goes, why do you got to recap that? We heard that before. And I said, but are you living it? And they turned around and went away. So, you know, we got to hear things over and over again because we don't just hear it once and get it right and live it perfect. No, you know, so Paul, you know, he's, he's got some repetition going here and he wants to say some important things over and over again so we'll get it. You know, this is a faithful saying. We talked about these things I want to... I want you to affirm constantly. So there's repetition. There's mental repetition. Uh, we need to remind ourselves daily, hourly, constantly that as God's children, we are to be doing good things not to save us, but to prove that we are his. We need to be doing good work so the world can see Jesus in us. What did I say the Holy Spirit's working to do in us? To conform us to the image of Christ. Don't you want to let the world have a peek at what's going on under the hood? Amen? And so that's why it's the constant reminder, the constant repetition uh, that we have to be doing 
certain things and certain behaviors, and, and, and we have to allow the Holy Spirit to grind off those rough edges. You know, some, someone I was close to moved uh, to a different state, and it's a, it's a much more laid-back state down south than this one is. And I said, what is it like when you come back here? What do you feel when you come to New York? And without even a breath, he said, hostility. Think about that. You know, some of you don't even know what I'm talking about, but if you go to another place, he said, when we're in traffic, people are waving the other people on, letting other people, people hold the door for you. Everybody says, good morning, hello. And you come to New York and they run over you and they, they give you hand gestures. And, and, I, and I found that was interesting. Hostility, wow. And sometimes you don't even realize it until you're out of it for a while. I remember when Charles moved up here, Charles, remember, you, you said, I said, what was it like when you were living down in the city there? You were like, I think you said it's, it's inhuman or something. People would steal your UPS packages right off your step. And I remember he looked so happy that he was up in the country. Amen. Is, is it still good? Still good? Amen. Well, We need to constantly be reminded to do good things and to let Jesus shine through us, you know. Um, sometimes we get caught up in the culture. We get caught up in, you know, who knows uh, as us living in the fast-paced New York society here, who knows what kind of spiritual bent we have in us. Who knows, you know, God may be trying to develop patience and compassion in us, and, and all that's around us is hostility. You know, and it takes time to get those once you get those things in you, it takes time to get them out. You know, I, have a, I have a hose at home. It's for a, a compressor that I use for my nail gun. And when it came from the factory, it was wound in the wrong direction. I'm a lefty. And when I wind up that hose, I wind it the opposite way of the way it came. So it's really annoying to me because as I'm rolling it, it's kinking. It's doing all kinds of crazy things. I'm saying I'm a lefty. You know. So what I, I did is I took it outside, and I stretched it out, and I put it in the heat. And the heat took the bend out of it, and I was able to bend it the opposite way, and then it stayed. You know, you say, Pastor, why, why is there so much pressure in life? Why is there so much heat? Sometimes God's trying to take the wrong bends out of us and conform us to the image of his son, amen? And we're, we're bent the wrong way. Well, you say it wasn't my fault. It wasn't the hose's fault either. Could have got a right-handed owner, but he didn't. And so... When the heat comes and the pressure comes and the repetition comes and the lesson comes over and over again, realize God is conforming you to the image of Christ. Those who, that those who had believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So it's the repetition. It's the constant reminder. It's us being careful to uh, maintain good works, as Paul says here. These things are good and profitable to men. So before I argue with the rude person online who cut me off at Walmart, maybe I should be careful to maintain good works. Before I get disrespectful with someone on the job, maybe I should be careful to maintain good works. Before I rage against another driver in traffic who just doesn't drive as well as me, maybe I should be more careful, come on, to maintain good works. Before I humiliate someone because they made a mistake, maybe I should be careful to maintain good works. Before I withhold mercy from someone who wronged me, maybe I should be careful to maintain good works. The world is watching. 
Come on, you New Yorkers. Bent the wrong way, full of hostility, fighting through traffic. God wants to do something in us to make us different so that we'll stand out, so that people can see Jesus under the hood. Amen. Paul's reminding us of all these things. Why? Because our behavior either points the broken to Christ or points them away from Christ. I'm going to say that again. You're still in shock from the first point there. Our behavior either points people to Jesus or drives them away from Jesus. You know, when, and they know we're Christians and they know who we are. Man, everywhere I go, you know, people, you know, everywhere I go, people know me. I, I, can, I can't spit on the curb. I can't do anything. I can't go out of the house unless my clothes match because people, oh, hi, Pastor Rick. People I don't even know. Every restaurant I go in, oh, you know, uh, Pastor, oh, I don't know. Where are these people coming from? So, you know, people know who we are. And they know where we go to church. And our behavior either points them to Jesus or points them away. I think of so many believers who've turned off others to the Lord with their behavior. I've seen Christians do the most outlandish things in restaurants, complain, belittle servers, leave no tip because they something they didn't like. Wow. How do you think that person feels about Christians? You know, you say, well, they don't know. Well, they, they, they know. The devil makes sure that they know when we misbehave. So, you know, a lot of these things seem rudimentary and easy, but they're so important. Our behavior is important. Our works are not going to save us, but they're, you know, they're going to prove that we're his, that we're different. We're going to point people towards the Lord if we behave properly and if we restrain ourselves. I know there's sometimes where it's well within our rights to just, you know, let it fly, but, but why? It doesn't cost us anything to be merciful. Haven't we received mercy? It doesn't cost us anything to be gracious. Don't we live by grace? You know, the older I get, the more of these lessons I learn. And I, I hope that as you're maturing in the Lord, you're learning them too. We're to be constant and careful, and that's how we should approach every day. Constant and careful. I'm a work in process. I'm being conformed to the image of Jesus. Everybody's watching me. So I want to I wanna be a good ambassador of Christ because it's going to point others to Jesus. Our daily routine is filled with opportunities to do good things in the eyes of men. We need to do these things and become more reflexive and develop you know, them as a reflex. Did you ever notice when maybe you got the wrong bend in you, your reflex is to lash out or to get angry right away or do the wrong thing? Just me? Is it just me? No, the rest of you got quiet on me. You wilted. But we've got we've to make our spirituality and our good works a reflex. You know, athletes and musicians call it muscle memory, that, you know, you do something over and over and over again so that you can do it without thinking. How many people played sports growing up? You know, you, you, you get these reflexes and you do these things. I watched my sons play baseball, basketball, football. I, I watched them with their reflexes and stuff, some amazing things that they did, amazing plays, Riley, on second base, Austin hitting three-pointers. It's just, you know, like, whose kids are those? And, you, you know, what it is, it is the training so that it becomes muscle memory. You look at a boxer who gets a jab fired at him, and he slips it and fires a combination back. How, how did that happen? Did he just get lucky? No, he did it a thousand times in the gym. He did it a thousand times on the mitts. He did it a thousand times on the heavy bag. 
How about a, a second baseman who snags a, a, a ball, hit 120 miles like a, and you see, how in the world do they make that play? Over and over and over again. They train, they practice, they discipline themselves. Could you imagine if we approached our faith like that? I'm in training. I'm disciplining myself. I'm restraining myself. I'm learning to be spiritually useful in the hands of God. Most, of Christ, most Christians don't approach the faith like that. We just kind of drag ourselves in all sloppy and happy and just, you know, see if we like the song. What if we trained like athletes? What if we developed discipline and muscle memory and spiritual reflexes? So that when someone's rude to us, instead of rah, 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 we're just like, we just exude some love and patience. Wow. God, help us. See, this is the working of the Holy Spirit, that he would train us, that he would discipline us, that he would give us spiritual reflexes and muscle memory so that we can be like Jesus. You know, Jesus wasn't going out there, a loose cannon, half cocked, unhinged, just firing off things. Every word he said was measured. Could you imagine you know, he could have put everybody in their place. But so many times he just restrained himself and said what pleased the Father. Paul again shifts gears a bit, and he finishes up his instructions to Titus with a few warnings about dealing with dissension and difficult people in the church. I want to say something. There are always going to be difficult people in life and in the church. Look around, see if you can spot the difficult ones. Go ahead, who is it? Don't point, don't point. No. But there's always going to be difficult people in church. You know, I hear people say, well, I went to church and somebody said X, Y, or they did this, or someone was rude, or they took my seat, and I'm never going back again. I had a friend who came to church, and because the doors in the front, we didn't unlock all of them, and he tried a bunch of them before he got in, he said, I'm never coming back here again. It is, I'm just waiting for him, Charles. It's a little funny, right? Really, that's why you don't, because you didn't know which. Uh. So, you know, there will always be issues in church. There will always be difficult people in church. There will always be conflict in church. And there will always be those who refuse to fall in line with leadership, with biblical morality, and the direction of the Holy Spirit. You're going to see that in church all the time. We're blessed here. We've got a lot of great people. We have so few problems. Amen. I'm not just saying that. Look, if you guys were problematic, I wouldn't say anything. But when I get together with the other pastors in the area and we're having lunch or something, and they're telling me the horror stories in their church, and, and I'm thinking, thank, thank you, Jesus, for these people. Amen. People with big mouths getting offended and coming in their office and reading the riot act. I'm like, man, I'd have shallow graves out in the back over there. <laughs> these, these guys put up with it, and they're like, well, we just had a board meeting and tried to figure out. I'm like, are you kidding me? Wow. You know, so there'll always be people like that, and you just you can't get away from them. So the key for those who do want to honor God is to address issues and not ignore them, you know. And when we have to deal with difficult people, we don't lose our joy. We don't lose our testimony. We don't, you know, we don't get so, you know, angry that, you know, we're more wrong by the time it's all said and done. We're more wrong than they were. Did you ever get in a situation like that? Someone did something to you, and by the time you gave them a piece of your mind and told them off and told them how it was, you, you had sinned worse than they did. 
Some people won't look at me now. Verse 9 is a warning to avoid such worthless arguments because, you know, they're rooted in pride. Look what it says here. <coughs> avoid fo foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Can the word be any more emphatic? Unprofitable and useless. There's no profit to them. It's a waste of time. They're useless. They produce nothing good. What is he talking about? All these little arguments, foolish disputes, and genealogy. See, arguing about, you know, these things, these little idiosyncrasies in Scripture and this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, apparently the Jews love the, the genealogies. They love to trace you know, the roots of things. Why? Because they were looking for the Messiah. So, you know, you're going to have people that have different opinions and then they want to argue over the nuances and, you know, they become contentious and then they strive and then they want to argue about the law and it's unprofitable and useless. You know, there are some people that just love to argue. You know, if you've met somebody like that, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, I, most of us are not like that. Most of us, you know, we avoid conflict and don't make drama for ourselves because we're wise amen but some people just love to argue and if you ever get around somebody like that you know i would encourage you to get away from them as fast as possible some people thrive on stirring up conflict you know and like tears they're sprinkled through the church they're always whispering something they're always bringing up something controversial they're always taking a jab at leadership look as if as i'm saying this someone is coming to mind Beware. <laughs> They're usually the ones with all new friends because everybody else ran away from them who figured them out. But there's always going to be people like that. They like to argue. They like to stir up conflict. There are some people who always have to be right. <laughs> Tim, this is not the altar call. Wait to the end. <laughs> but, you know, some people really, they, like, they can't, they can't get into a a disagreement or a discussion without coming out on top and feeling like they were right. You know, and th this is what Paul's, and apparently the Cretans, we've said it over and over again, were a rough bunch, but, you know, apparently all this stuff was going on in that place and Titus was going to have to deal with it. So these people who like to argue and stir up conflict and always have to be right, you know, you need to disarm them, you need to put them gently in their place and you need to not engage in that behavior with them. Some people love to project their intellectual superiority over others. You ever met somebody like that? They always got, no matter what you say, they're going to one-up you, and in the end, they're going to show how much smarter they are than you. Well, the married people look nervous now. God help us if we have that in our marital relationships. So verse 9 is telling us not to get sucked into such drama because the end of it all is worthless, useless, and unprofitable. And that's why I've taken the time to just kind of, you know, unpack verse 9 here a little bit because, you know, as we went through that list, you know, maybe you thought of people, or you encountered people, or you can spot those things. And what the Word is telling you is don't get sucked up in that and don't engage people like that. Love them, pray for them, run away from them if you have to but don't get sucked into their world because it's a waste of your spiritual time and energy. Now, some of you look happy because you got freedom. Wow, thank God I can finally get away from that person. Yeah, that's wisdom, amen? <laughs> so, 
Sometimes we think, oh, you know, we have to, we have to put up with them. Jesus wants me to. No, sometimes the Holy Spirit is saying, let's slap it and beef a boogie and get out of here. Anybody? So arguing theological gray areas and nuances with fellow Christians is a waste of time. We don't need to argue about theology. Here's what else is a waste of time. Arguing theology and nuances with people who are in cults. You know, we, we've all dealt with people who are in cults. They knock on your door. They're dressed nice. They disrupt your Saturday morning TV show. And they want to talk theology with you. You know, I want to say something. The only thing you and I should do is share our testimony, be loving, but don't, don't get into it because it is a waste of time to argue theology with people who are deceived. And they don't have an open heart or mind to receive anything from you. So share your testimony, close the door, and go back to what you were watching. When we deal with people who want to argue, when we deal with people who want to have theological debates, when we deal with people who want to get us to question our, uh, our theology or our commitment to Christ, we should stick to the gospel, we should share our testimony, and especially with Christians, we need to learn that it's okay to disagree about the minors if we have the majors in common. You know, don't major in the minors. What does that mean? Well, you know, there's this one little thing in Scripture, you know, and I have an opinion on it. And I'm going to fight to the death with anyone who wants to talk to me about it and prove that I'm right. Don't do that. Argue about, you know, the, the third horn on the fifth beast of the book of Revelation or... <laughs> you know, what the Nephilim are, or you don't want to get into some. You know, if you have the majors in common, what are the majors? Jesus is the only way to salvation. He came, he was born of a virgin, he hung on the cross, he died, he was risen again, amen. Uh, salvation is a free gift. You know, the majors. If you have the majors in common, then you have fellowship. And, and you're brothers and sisters in Christ. But don't argue about the nuances, don't argue about the gifts of the Spirit. Don't argue about, look, if someone does, is not good, just don't argue about that stuff. It's divisive, and the Word warns us not to do it. And if we do it against the warning of the Word, we're fools, and we're going to make drama for ourselves. The Bible says correct the fool and invite a beating. I've gotten some beatings on the way up until I learned to just not argue with people. Amen. Well, verse 10 and 11 is going to be a bit of a shock for the tolerant. Everybody gets a trophy generation, but here goes verses 10 and 11. Reject the device of man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. So here's a little bit of uh, church discipline in the sense where, you know, you're going to have people that are divisive. You're going to have people that love to argue. You're going to have people that love to stir up dissension, and they always have to be right. You know, uh, w when you have somebody like that, uh, the word is giving us instruction how to deal with them. We should correct them not once, but at least twice. Amen. And see, correction has to be done in love. And if a person receives correction given in a spirit of love and they repent or they relent or they back down or they just chill out then we've won our brother or sister but if they don't listen to a first correction what the word tells us we need to go at least a second time 
And there's also, you know, places in Scripture where it says to bring elders with us. And there's, there's a methodology of church discipline. And we're talking about people who are, you know, stirring up trouble, sowing seeds of false theology, or just, you know, sowing seeds of dissension or disunity in the body. The, serious issues. And so uh, we're to go to them. And we're to try and win them over. We're to go at least a second time. But if they, they don't repent and if they, if they won't, you know, back off, if they won't receive correction, then we're supposed to, you know, cut them off. See, now it's really quiet because nobody likes this step. Well, let's just let them stay and make trouble. We'll just deal with the trouble. Oh, just extend them grace. See, there's something about leaven. There's something about people with wrong intentions that can sow things tears and disunity and leaven in the body that can really disrupt churches. Some of you have come from churches that have split. And if you've come from a church that's split or had dissension in it, or, you know, I've seen this so many times in, in my ministry, uh, in other places, you know, what a mess it makes when churches split. Not only do people get hurt and wounded, some of them never come back to church and they walk away from God completely. There's always there's always serious collateral damage. And so, you know, that person who won't repent or won't get right or won't come out of a sinful lifestyle, you know, they want to call themselves a Christian, but they're, they're practicing wickedness. They're in sexual sin or they're in immorality and they won't repent. The Bible says we have to cut them off. And if we don't cut them off, we run the risk of them getting some of that leaven on us. None of us are strong enough to hang around with people that are in sin and not get a little bit of that on us. The Bible says to, to depart from a violent man, least you learn his ways. You know why? Because if you hang around someone who's always making trouble, who's always starting fights, who's always, you know, aggressive, that's going to get on you. So we have to, at some point, reject divisive people and break fellowship with them. Uh, you know, if they won't repent, and then we've gone at least two times, and their conscience is seared, and they just they want to stay in sin, and they want to stay in the church. They want all the benefits of a fellowship in the church, but at the same time, you know, being completely worldly and infecting others around them. Uh, we have to push them away. 1 Corinthians 5, 3 through 6 tells us why. For indeed, as absent in the body but present in the spirit, have already judged as though I was present. Paul's talking about sin going on in the Corinthian church. Him who has done these deeds in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Did you hear that? Deliver them to Satan. What? For the destruction of the flesh. Why? So that they'll repent and get saved. See, when we got people in all kinds of sin and they're just allowed to remain happy in the church and we don't drive them out into the world, sometimes they'll sit there all the way to hell and they'll wake up separated from God. But, man, you guys, you guys look like you're just, you never heard this before. But we have to cut them off. Why? Because when we push them out to the world, uh, when we deliver them to Satan for the buffeting of the flesh, things get hot and things get bad, and then they're more likely to repent. Sometimes as Christians, we enable people, and we're not helping them. We're helping the devil keep them in bondage. 
But if we'll break fellowship with them, and I've had to do this with people, some close people in my life, I've had to break fellowship with, and they, they didn't like it, and they were mad, and they, you know, and, and years passed, and you know what? Eventually they repented or got something straightened out or did the right things, and then, you know, I would inject myself back into their lives, and then the, at least there was repentance there. Is this thing on? Yeah. So I know this is hard, and I know, you know, it's probably the last thing any of us want to do, and I'm sure we can rationalize why we shouldn't do it, because it's judgmental, because it's not gracious, because everybody gets a trophy, because who are we to judge? But it's not what the Word says. If there are people in your life who are claiming to be Christians, yet they're in unbiblical lifestyles and practices, and they won't repent, you should withdraw yourself from them. And you should pray that things get really hot for them so they will repent. Because it's so much better to lose a friend than it is for a person to lose their soul. Verses 12 through 15, shut down the book, shut down the chapter. Um, he's giving a little instructions here. He says, when I send Artemis and Tychus to you, make every effort to come to me. And so he, he's doing some business here. He's telling them where he's going to win, winter. He says this in verse 13, diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that there is nothing lacking with them. So there again, he's encouraging them to what? These ministers that travel, he's encouraging them to give to them, to supply them, to refresh them so, you know, they have the, the means and the, the necessary things that they need to minister. Uh, verse 14 our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet the pressing needs. So he's talking about, you know, uh, what we talked about on Sunday, the offerings and, and helping meet the needs of those who are in ministry so that they will be, not be unfruitful. Verse 15 acts as a greeting and concludes by saying, grace be with you all. So all of these things are functions of the church. Uh, you know, we're talking here about avoiding this, the repetition of good works that will make us look like Christ. Titus is a powerful book, and I hope that you were blessed as we enjoyed it together. Let's, amen. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, I just thank you, Lord God, for this, this group of people. I thank you for the time we had in the Word tonight. And Father, some of this is, uh, some of this is deep, and some of this rubs us in places where, you know, it's uncomfortable. Father, help us to be those who are more willing to fulfill the word and live the word and, and, and restrain our flesh and, uh, and change our attitudes, Lord. We want to look like Jesus in the end result. And so, Lord God, through your Holy Spirit, do a work in each of us. And Father, where there's rough edges in me and where there's rough edges in my brothers and sisters, we give you permission to address those things aggressively. Conform us to the image of Christ. Help us to avoid pride and foolish arguments and theological superiority and all of these things that just bring division, Lord God. Help us. Help us, Lord God, to do what's necessary to keep the body of Christ healthy and strong. We ask it in Jesus' name.